Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. For anyone who wants to make money and make a difference, grow and leverage your enterprise better, get more done in less time, outsource everything and create your ideal lifestyle. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. This is Rob Moore here with Sales Makes the World Go Round. I argued, postulated, what a word for me at this time, that the most important function of any business is marketing. Because if you use the analogy of a shop, sales is selling someone some product when they're in your shop. Marketing is getting them in your shop. But either a close second or maybe a joint first, but on count back marketing just wins, is sales. Because cash is the single most important part of your business. Yeah, you could argue staff, you could argue systems, you could argue marketing. But if you don't have any cash, uh, you don't have any runway left, then you can't finance any of those things we've just mentioned. So if we had to say the, the most important thing in a business is cash. If you've got cash, then life is good. Business is good. You can invest in marketing. You can scale. You can grow. You can invest in resource. You've got... 24 months, 36 month burn rate so that if you had no sales for the next three years, you can still finance the business. If there's a recession, you can burn through that recession with cash. So cash makes the world go round. Cash makes your business function. And what brings cash is sales. You cannot skirt around it. And I was thinking before I did this podcast that I wanted to say, don't be a pussy and get out there and start selling some more stuff. And then I thought, well, is that a bit hard or aggressive? And I thought, don't, don't micromanage your own thoughts, just say it. Because I had this really big phobia around selling when I started, well, before I started any of my business, in fact, when I was an artist. And in fact, before that, when I was a landlord in a pub. And what you do when you have a, a, a mindset issue around selling or you have a belief issue around selling or you think somehow selling is inherently bad or a cultural or religious or political issue or whatever, then what you do is you spend hours and hours a day posturizing and d- skirting around, trying to do all these other, other unimportant functions, tidying your desk and ordering your files and writing and designing and all these things that don't bring in any money. And then the business doesn't grow, doesn't survive. And none of that stuff meant anything. It was just a whole lot of wasted time. So if you could do one thing that would increase your business and would make you recession-proof and future-proof, it would be to master sales. So let me take you back 10 years. Let me take you back a little bit further when I was a landlord of a pub. Now, I was a landlord of my dad's pub, and I kind of just took that over because I was at university. I was pretty good at knowing the inner workings of a pub because I was getting drunk five nights a week. I came back from university. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Was I, was going, to be, was I going to be an architect? I thought maybe I'll go to Australia. You know, I'm in my sort of early to mid 20s, still searching, didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. And dad wasn't very well at the time. And we had a family pub. And I thought, well, I'll come back and help out for a bit because that also conveniently delayed me making the important decision in my life. So I thought, well, that's OK. I'll just do that for a while. I can earn 200 quid a week was what dad was offering. And whilst that wasn't a huge amount of money, it was enough when you didn't have any overhead. And I thought, well, that'll be cushy. 
And I ended up being there for a couple of years. And whilst you could argue it was a good bridge, but it was also another part of my life where I didn't have any direction or vision or legacy, which is why I create so much content around that and comment so much on that because I'm scratching my own itch because I didn't have that for so many years and I wish I had. You know, if I could have been an entrepreneur 10 years before I was, I'd be dangerous. So even at the pub, I couldn't sell things. I was comfortable behind the bar pulling pints for people who asked for it. But, you know, I couldn't get out the front and go and sort of sell the, the, the services a bit more. I wouldn't dare ask the customers if they wanted a dessert or really push a dessert on them or, you know, even just push them having another drink. And because I didn't ever want to go there. They weren't ever, if you like, it was like a dark secret or it was like something about me that I didn't want to open up. And I thought it would go away if I went and did something else. And I'm leading to a point here in this story. So I thought, well, if I go into art, then, you know, I don't have to be kind of customer facing and, you know, I don't have to be pushed myself into uncomfortable positions because I can just paint and people will buy my art and, you know, that'd be, that'd be easy. And, I, you know, I, I'm not particularly great anymore at blowing my own trumpet. Uh, it's weird, the better you get, the less you, good you get at that. And so I was actually a really good artist. I got A star at... GCSE, A at A level, just resubmitting a lot of my work because I had a motorbike accident. And at, at sixth form level, I got 100%, which is, how'd you get 100% at art? And this almost makes me even more ridiculous because I could paint and I could draw, but I failed as an artist. And what they don't tell you at art school, well, how would I know I didn't go? What they don't teach you in school is the kind of the hard reality of sort of selling and, you know, the Americans call it hustling and grinding and getting out there and, and convincing other people to buy your stuff. And I felt that that was in position. You know, I felt like it was not a cultural thing done in England. I mean, one thing I love and respect about our American friends and listeners and salespeople is you're much more confident and overt about selling as a general culture. And I really respect that about America. Now, sometimes that can turn into overselling and you have to be careful about that. But in Britain, we're very overly polite and I guess culturally, we think it's not really the right thing to do. We want to be a gentleman about selling. Oh, no, after you. OK, if you don't want to buy my things, that's no problem. I'll just pack up my suitcase and put my tail between my legs and I'll just get into my car and I'll drive another 200 miles to my next appointment. And they're going to say no as well. But I'll be very polite about it. And we'll still be friends. <laughs> and, you know, I, I kind of that's how I was. And that wasn't who I was as a person. But that's who I was because of the culture and the society and and me not getting in myself and actually thinking, you know what, this selling stuff, I've got to embrace it. So I didn't fail at art because I was a bad artist. I, statistically, I was one of the best in the country uh, 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 for many years. I failed because I couldn't sell it. And I think if you look at a lot of the modern artists now, who you could argue their technical ability might be minimal, I think they're great marketers and salespeople. And if you study Tracy Emin, Damien Hurst, and many of the artists that are in the Tate Modern, they've got a really good network of high net worth customers, and they're able to convince those customers that what they have is unique, valuable, gives them credibility, social proof, importance, and it's something that they really need, even though they don't really need it, because who needs installation art, and gets them to pay millions of pounds for it. And culturally, certainly in England, we kind of have this, well, there's no value in that. And so therefore, this person is either stupid for paying the money or we're ripping them off and treating them like, like they're an idiot as a buyer. 
But for a transaction to happen, there has to be an equal fair exchange of value. And the customer will pay what they perceive to be the equal value, or they'll pay less if they think they get a bargain. And you selling need to convey your value, you know, higher value, hopefully, than you are right now of what you're offering to get a fair remuneration for it. And if you undervalue yourself, you will undersell your products and you won't be able to cover your overhead and maintain a profit margin. And if you oversell yourself and your products, you'll get good initial sales and cash flow, but then you'll get a revolt and you'll get complaints and money will be driven away from you and forced away from you in refunds and lawsuits and social media attacks, etc. So to that end, sales is literally a persuasion of the perception of value, i.e. I have something that I believe in, because if you don't believe in it, why should anyone else? I have this product or service or consultation or something about me, an expression of me like art that I believe in. And I'm passionate enough about that. And I care enough about you about that to give you fair exchange, but I'm not going to undersell myself either. And I think that's what you can learn from a lot of these great modern artists. Now, of course, they'll probably have like great agents and they'll have middlemen. And I'll talk about agents, i.e. your sales team uh, later on. So maybe not just them. But I think they, they're able to balance value with perception, with, you know, maybe the illusion of, of increased value and desire and scarcity and urgency and social proof uh, with them feeling that it's worth, they're worth it. Now, this becomes self-perpetuating because the more you charge for your products, the more of a higher client you'll get and the higher level of client you get the more belief you have in your ability to to attract a higher level of client. And as you do that, your self-worth goes up. And therefore, what you do is you say no to lower value opportunities. And if someone wants to pay 50 pence for a pound or five pound for a 10 pound, or if you're in America, $5 for $10, you say no, because you want to charge $100 for $10 and give them a bit of extra value on top to create that extra $90 of value. So you, you say no to devaluing and depositioning yourself and your products which frees time for higher value clients who are prepared to pay more money, who perceive the value in a higher way, and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. But you have to start that snowball, if you like. So I really believe we're in a world, especially with social media, and everybody's at their own media operation now. Anyone can set up a YouTube channel, do a Facebook live feed or a podcast like this. It costs virtually nothing. And everyone's their own TV station, radio station, and there's a massive competition for voice, for mind space, for awareness. So if you don't sell yourself, then it's the Darwinian times where someone's going to sell themselves and you're going to lose the business. So you either sell yourself and you get your message out there and you wear what you sell with a badge of pride and honor or someone else is going to take your business and then you'll just become bitter and twisted. So let me revert to that and say that get over yourself and get out there and start selling more stuff. Now, there are a few steps. Of course, no one's going to sell anything they don't passionately believe in. So listen to some of my earlier podcasts on finding your vision, your passion, your legacy, if you're not sure yet. Now, what you believe in could be a product or service that you create from your own heart, like an artist who expresses themselves. What you believe in could be a product or service that you sell for someone else, like people who who work for my company, Progressive Property, and really believe how we're changing the world. So it doesn't have to be something you create because, yes, this podcast is called The Disruptive Entrepreneur, but it could be The Disruptive Intrapreneur and it could be The Disruptive Salesman or The Disruptive Affiliate. 
And it's best to get started and find something that you believe in or you know you could believe in and you could grow into believing and getting out there and giving it a go and starting selling some stuff than it is to wait until you're absolutely perfectly believing 150% from your soul and you were born to do this. Because no matter what you believe in, you're going to have downsides and down days and challenges, no matter how great that is, no matter how good your product or service or idea is, there's always going to be a critique, a hater or a troll that's going to stand against you. So you almost have have to have a little bit of get perfect later, ready, fire, aim about going out there and selling some stuff. So if you can embrace selling, now I know I've talked for, what, 12 minutes on embracing selling, but even if you're sitting here thinking, I love sales and I'm a good salesperson, why aren't you selling more? You want more money, don't you? You want a bigger business, don't you? You want more scale, more leverage, don't you? So maybe you need to get out there and increase your prices. Maybe you need to look at a higher value of client. Or maybe as a, if you are a great salesperson, you should be training up a team of great salespeople. You know, like the big real estate agents who, who have all of the sort of independent real estate brokers. And you want to be the one running the seminars like the big network marketing companies. You want to be pumping up and teaching and motivating and inspiring your sales team so your sales team get out there, your foot soldiers on the ground and go and sell. So you can scale no matter what level of selling you're at. Now, I believe you have some choices here, actually. It's quite good that it's not sell or die because you can sell or die if you choose. But actually, if you hate selling, then why don't you partner with or hire a great salesperson? Why don't you find someone who's amazing at either just selling in general and, you know, as long as you can get them to believe in your product, you know they're going to sell well, or someone who's so inspired and believes in your product or your service or your idea that they want to go out and sell it even if they're not really the salesy sales type. Because, you know, if you think of like someone in Silicon Valley or, you know, if you, if you perceive this really passionate, techie kind of startup data head. Now, sorry, I'm really over stereotyping here, but there's a point to this. They're not necessarily your stereotypical salesperson who's really good at sales techniques and rapport and really great with people and really elegant and beautifully and calmly handles objections and reframes and tells amazing stories. You know, the perception of a salesperson, I think, is a little bit you know, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, if you've seen it, or it's a little bit of a stereotype. But the best salespeople in the world are people who have an inspiring vision, who are passionate about it, and don't worry about the consequences of what other people will think about them. And they just want to go and tell everyone and share everyone and get everyone to believe in it. You know, the moment when Steve Jobs convinced the ex-head of Pepsi to come and work for Apple instead of selling brown water his whole life. And if you, if you think about Elon Musk or, or anyone like that, who's a, you know, you wouldn't necessarily say they look like a natural gifted salesperson, but you're inspired by their vision. You get what they're doing. And, and you know, I, I, I'm a petrol head and I love cars and, you know, I, I love the V8s and the V12s and, and I love the noise. But I must admit that he's making me want to buy electric cars. And despite the fact I love Ferraris. And, you know, that's, he's, he's not in a double-breasted suit giving me techniques. So I think that's good news if you're not a salesy, salesy, salesy salesperson, that you want to get in tune more with your vision, your idea, your passion, and you just want to get that out to everyone. And if you're none of that because you're just a really, you're really great at HR or you're really great at data, spreadsheets and you just you're still thinking I'm none of that Rob that's fine find someone who is and partner with them give them a share of your business or 
give them a really high commission and hire them. So you've really got no excuse. You can love selling, embrace selling, learn to do it yourself, do it more, step up your game, outsource it, hire it, or get someone and partner in your business. Now, if there's two partners in a business, one of you's got to be able to sell. Because if two of you do the same thing, one of you isn't needed. You don't both, in fact, it's probably bad if you're both really good salespeople. But one of you needs to sell. And that's why I failed as a pub landlord. That's why I failed as an artist. Now, if I was going back and doing art today, I'd hire a load of great artists and get them to paint for me. And I'd hire a load of great salespeople to go and get them to sell them for me. I might even hire someone to write my signature on them all. I'd hire a great marketer. And I would create a vision and legacy of, of, of what was different and unique about my art business. And then I would let the team around me go and serve the function of sales and marketing and creation, etc. And I know that sounds like a little bit of a McDonald's way of being an artist, but I really would look at being more enterprising and entrepreneurial. Or at least if I was going to paint myself, I'd paint less and charge a lot more. And I'd spend a good amount of my time in sales and marketing rather than just in painting. Because I'm still sat in my house where I am right now doing this podcast, having to look at a load of my art because I couldn't fucking sell it. And yeah, you know, okay, it's kind of fun. And people say, oh, well, that'll probably be worth a lot of money. Well, it probably isn't until I'm dead. But literally in my house, we've got like eight or 10 pieces I did. And I'm looking, I'm thinking, you know, this, this, that's good art, but I couldn't sell it. And this is like 11 years old pieces. So don't be the story of the person who had a great product or service or idea and it became extinct or you lost out to your competitors because they're better at selling. Okay, so you get the picture. You've got to be able to sell. Okay, so when we got our businesses off the ground, my role was sales, marketing, brand, design. You know, I, I, was like, I took seven or eight people's roles. Mark's was buying property, managing property, managing refurbs, accounts, finance, etc. So we compartmentalized our roles. And we, I think we, when we created our future org chart, we had about 14 or 15 roles in it, something like that. And I was half of them and Mark was half of them. And, and, you know, and that's the way you start. And mine were nearly all sales focused. And I'll let you into a little secret that maybe my business partner doesn't know. Most people don't know about me when I started. And that is that I was petrified of selling. But the reason I took them on was because I didn't have money. I didn't have as much property knowledge as Mark. I couldn't manage refurbs. So all of his functions that he could do really well, I was rubbish at them. So the only value I had was in doing something that he couldn't do. It so happened that all the things he couldn't do, I couldn't do. So I kind of blagged that I could do it, or at least I'd said to him, I'll passionately learn about it and I'll take it on. And, you know, I'll go to seminars and I'll read books and I'll listen to audios and I'll push myself and I'll get over myself and I'll push myself through my comfort zone. And Mark didn't really need to know that I was the finished article. He needed to know that I was prepared to learn and grow and develop. And so that's what I did. And I studied so many amazing sales trainers. I'm going to list a lot of them at the end of this series. This may turn into a two-parter. I think it is looking at the time. So at the end of the second part, I'm going to list you all the books that, that at the time really blew my mind and really helped me sell a lot more. So I think that'd be very beneficial to you. So that was my role and I was scared of it. So some of the basic tips I learned were a no is only a no today. So... Get used to saying no's. Go for more no's because the more no's you get, the more yeses you'll end up getting. And I, I think that viewing no as a target 
rather than yes as a target was quite a revelation to me. And it just helped me kind of downplay my fears and phobias. Now, you might be listening and you're not necessarily having that many fears and phobias, but you might be not be getting as many no's. You might not be getting through your, your calls or your meetings as quick. You may be dragging sales out and keeping them on the burn when actually they're just an extended no. So go for more no's. But really, what a no is, is a no today. And a no is only really a no when they say, stop talk, stalking me, leave my family alone. I'm going to put a restricting order on your ass. So, you know, only ever really take the no when it's absolute and it's final. And in which case, then delete it from your CRM or your database. Because, for example, I approach a lot of people to do the interviews on The Disruptive Entrepreneur. And we've, as you know, got some amazing people. But there's so many big hitters I'd really love. I know you'd be inspired by interviews with some of them. And some of them respond and some of them don't. And yeah, maybe some of them, you know, I'm not big enough for them yet. Arnold Schwarzenegger, maybe, for example. So you just got to keep going. You just got to keep getting the no and getting the no. The no is only the no today. Do it next week. Have it turn up next month. You know, when I started, I was saying I've got 25,000 subscribers thinking that that was a lot. And then it was 100,000 subscribers thinking that was a lot. And now it's 220,000 subscribers. And because if I listen to this in six months, I'll be like, you know, now it's a million subscribers. So it might be no at 200,000 subscribers, but what about a million subscribers or 2 million subscribers? And also, if you've had a couple of no's, at least there's some rapport there. At least they know who you are. And at least there's that mind space. So go for more no's to get more yeses. Now, there are different ways of financing your business. And, you know, obviously one of them is, is equity. So selling equity, getting venture capital and selling shares in your business. And that's really kind of the, the, the tech Silicon Valley way of doing it, or at least it's the popularized way of doing it. That's not my preferred method. I think that comes with a huge cost. I'm not saying it's bad. Of course, it's a proven model. But the cost is you're given to give away a load of future profits. Your, your autonomy is diminished. You, you're going to have to make decisions you don't like. You're going to have to answer to a board. Decisions could take a lot longer. Your vision might get ch- changed or diluted. You might get fired from your own company. That's quite common. So the way we financed our business was through cash, which is sell something either before it's delivered or at point of delivery. Now, this was the big game changer that Dell pioneered because the way Dell pioneered their business model was they would sell you a computer and then build it. So what a normal traditional business has to do is it it has to buy stock and it has to have inventory and therefore you've got a load of cash, you know, sucked away and locked in stock, which will depreciate over time because inflation will erode the price of the stock. And if it's, say, for example, anything in tech, you know, Moore's law in three years, it might be worth next to nothing. So the longer cash is held in stock, the the more it depreciates. And of course, it's a drain on your cash flow in your business and your ability to pay staff and overhead. So what Dell did was they'd sell the computer Then they'd build it and ship it to the client. And let's say there was a 30-day turnaround, you know, 10-day, 30-day, whatever. They they are reversing the cash flow position because what most companies have is a negative cash flow position in days measured. So they might have 30 or 90 days, you know, negative position, i.e. they've got minus 30 to 90 days it takes to get the cash back that they invested in the stock. And what Dell did, they completely reversed it. And so they had positive days of cash flow. 
So they might have positive 20 or positive 30 days. So they've got the cash extra in the bank 20 or 30 days before they, give the, they sell the product out. And that was like a, revo a revolution and a revelation at the time. Now, if you're hearing this story and you heard that before, you know about that now. They were really the big trailblazer or trendsetter or innovator. So what that meant is they had a, 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 a huge positive cash flow position. and They didn't have cash flow problems. Now, if you're selling IP information courses, sort of information marketing, anything like that, you can do this. You can sell your information and then deliver it in a month or two months. So we run lots of courses. We sell the course, someone signs up to the course, and they might do the course in a month or two or three months time. They might have a whole suite of all the courses and they might have them delivered to themselves over the year. And you've got a huge cash flow positive in terms of days measured position there. And that's a great way to start a business is sell a few things that you don't have to buy a stock or have on inventory. And then you pre-finance your overheads. Now, one little word of warning or caution is what you don't want to do is do that and then not deliver the product or service because that's just a con, you know, that's a snake oil. So I'm making the assumption you've got a good product or service, it's viable. You're not going to go and spray all the money around because businessmen or entrepreneurs, people who've stumbled upon this model accidentally, i.e. they didn't know they were doing this, but they were doing it. They get a bit excited. They go and buy a few Lamborghinis. You know, they go spray all the money and then they've got to deliver the product or service and you know, then they run out of cash. So don't do that. Make sure that you save a lot of the money. If you've got, say, a year's delivery, why don't you save 10 months of the money and keep two months of the money that you can use to cash flow and finance forward your business? So sell it first and then use the cash to cash flow your business way better than creating debt that you've got a repayment on or selling equity where you've sold your soul or half your future profits on. Okay, so let's look at the two main ways because... With sales, it's actually not that difficult. There are only two main ways to improve your sales. One of them is to get better at selling. And one of them is to increase the volume of people you're selling to. So if you do 50 sales points, meetings, calls a week, if you get your conversion from 10 to 20%, then you're doubling the top line of your business. Someone's at the door. You might have heard that. That'll be my kids coming in, pressing the doorbell, even though they don't need to. So... The second thing you can do is stay just the same in terms of your ability to sell, but do 100 sales points, meetings or calls per period. Now, here's the great thing, the great bit of news for you. If you don't like selling, you know, and you don't really want to invest a lot of time into improve, just take the attrition route number two, which is just increase the volume, the prospects. Hey, the, the sort of the non-skilled way of doing it. Of course, if you invest time to get better, to learn, to educate yourself, then, you know, you're going to be able to get twice the overhead, sorry, twice the turnover, maybe even three or four times the profit by doing no extra sales calls or no extra meetings. Simply. So let me remind you of those because I know it's simple, but most people aren't following this model. Get more skilled, technical or experienced at selling. Now, I believe life is a continual journey of growth. I believe the two main purposes of being a human being are growth and contribution. So you should continue to work on your craft. Now, I believe every entrepreneur should, to a certain amount of time per week or month, develop your ability to sell because you've got to sell a vision, sell an idea. You've got to sell uh, hiring a great manager. You've got to sell yourself that what you're doing is the right thing. So, you know, everyone is always selling. So why not always work on your craft? Why not listen to audiobooks? Why not read great books? Why not go to the odd seminar? Even if you're not involved 
in the day-to-day selling. Because the thing you can do is, is learn that and then teach that to your team. Then inspire your team and get your team out there firing, going and selling a lot more. So, hey, one of the best ways to develop your ability to sell is to teach your team to sell too and, and observe what happens to them. And then the second one, again, like I said, is to get the volume up. Now, if you get your sales touch points, let's call it 50 sales calls a day you do if you're doing bookings, you know, just like bash, 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 bash. If you get 50 to 60, what's that? An increase of one fifth. So 15%, I don't know, something like that, 20%. That's fine. But then go to 60 to 70, that's pretty unsustainable. You might burn yourself out. If you had 10 salespeople doing 50 calls a week or a day, then again, you can see that you've got huge leverage there. So the next thing you want to think about is measuring everything. You cannot master what you don't measure. So every single point in the process of lead to customer buying the last product you ever sold them, are you measuring those points? Are you working out, for example, the cost to acquire the lead, the origin of the lead? Are you working out how many calls you need to generate a lead how many calls a lead needs to have called to generate into a sale, how many sales they, how many sales events there are, i.e. how many products they buy from you on average, that's called LCV, lifetime client value. Are you measuring calls per hour, calls per day, calls per month? Are you measuring revenue per lead, revenue per sale? therefore revenue per call, therefore revenue per day, therefore revenue per month. So make sure that you measure everything in the sales process. Time of day. What you generally find is 8 to 9 a.m. is a good time to do sales. 9 to 10 a.m. isn't. Lunchtime can be or can't be depending on your niche. Evenings can be or can't be depending on your niche. So again, you want to measure the time of day. So let's say, for example, you're managing 50 calls a day and it would not be smart to do seven calls per hour. It would be smart to do 20 calls in, at eight till nine when you know you get the most response and the most buyers and no calls at 12 till one where you get virtually no response and you do all your admin from 12 till one. So like with golf, you will use your wedges and your putter on nearly all of the shots. Like I, I believe, I actually wrote, I wrote it in Life Leverage, I did a, I segmented the amount of percentages you use your clubs. And your putter and wedges are something like 60% of your shots, yet they're two or three out of 14 clubs in your bag. So should you put one fourteenth of your time into every club or should you put 60% of your time into your wedges and your putter? So if you can think 80-20 and think the life leverage philosophy around measuring everything, time, response, revenue per unit or call or unit of time, you will dramatically increase your results. And the great thing is you can dramatically increase your results and reduce the amount of time that you put into sales. So if it's just you and you're just a salesperson, then you might find you can double or triple your results in a third of the time. If you think 80, 20 and think life leverage philosophy, what you might find you can do is you can get 5% out of each sales team member in your organization. And if you've got five or 10 or 50 of them, there's a huge amount of leverage in getting that 5% improvement out of each one. If you could teach them a couple of techniques, if you can get them getting more responses and you know, getting the phone picked up more or getting more, more bookings and more meetings, then there's great leverage. OK, 
Okay, now not all products or services are equal and not all delivery mechanisms to sell those products or services are equal. So, for example, some products or services might sell well on the phone, but you're probably not going to sell an £85,000 retreat or a £250,000 Ferrari on the phone. But if you're selling a low-ticket event or a book, you don't need to bring them over for a wine and cheese opening launch party to sell them a book. So you want to think about the vehicles and mechanisms that you're using and marry them up with the products or services. So you might have one-to-one, you know, face-to-face sales meetings. You might have more than one of those. Like if you're business to business and going for high level contracts at the corporate level and you're dealing with budgets of millions or billions and you're dealing with gatekeeper after gatekeeper and you've got to try and get to the decision maker and you're dealing with companies who budget 18 months in advance, then you might have, it might be eight meetings over six months and you're not going to sell someone on the phone selling to the PA of the person who's the decision maker. So think, thinking about the cost and the value of the item, the higher the cost and the higher the value, the more touch points and maybe the more face-to-face is needed. You know, think some of the huge brands like Ferrari or like the big watch brands or whatever. And then something really low value, but high volume, small widgets, I don't know, peanuts, confectionery or whatever. You can sell them in large volumes or information, lower, lower value information products. They might be able to be sold on mass via media, such as TV, YouTube, webinars, Facebook live feed videos, etc. So you want to make sure you've got the right product matched with the right vehicle, the right price points matched with the right vehicle. And really the best way for you to discover this in your own niche, because it might be different from mine, is to test. Now what we find is products under £200 can sell in pretty high value, sorry, in a pretty high volume in leveraged media such as online on social media, webinars, live feed videos, maybe uh, web, YouTube recorded salesy or sales videos, etc. What we find is £500, £1,000, £2,000, £5,000, £10,000, £15,000. They need to be probably spending between one and three days worth of time with you. Now, that might be chunked into an hour's meeting a few times, or it might be a live event you put on a one-day or a three-day event where you, you build a lot of rapport and deliver a lot of information, uh, and you are able to showcase your products and services. So have a play with those, the different vehicles and the, and the price points. Now, if something is new and exciting, then you might be able to sell it for a little bit more than normal on a leverage platform. But if something is diminishing in terms of its value or its excitement its newness, then you might have to reduce that slightly. Now, you want to make sure that you calculate the lifetime client value so that you can then reverse how much you can pay for a lead. Now, this is covered, I'm sure, in previous podcasts I've done, especially around marketing. But it can be quite demoralizing if you're getting no's, 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 and you feel like you're wasting your time. But if the lifetime client value of a yes is let's say £72,500, then getting 50 or 100 or 200 no's, that's not a problem, is it? Not a problem at all. Now, if the lifetime client value is 72 pence and you're doing 85 calls to get a no, then that's a problem. So when you measure not just what someone buys at the first opportunity, but the second and third and fourth and fifth, and that, now that might mean you have to do some 
future data testing and you don't know that yet, or what you may be able to do is go over all the products and services you've sold and average it, divide it by the turnover you've done. So you might say, for example, I've turned over a million pounds. You've got to work out how many products you've sold, at what price, and divide the number of products and the price by the turnover, and you should be able to get lifetime client value. So work out the number of customers. So you might have 10 customers who've bought 10 things, or you might have 100 customers who've bought one thing. You might have 100 customers who've bought one thing, but they've bought it 100 times. Or you might have 10 customers who've bought... 50 different things. It depends on your product and service. I don't want to overcomplicate it. But you want to track all of that because sometimes going for that bigger sale can be a bad move because actually it's better to go for the smaller sale because you know that once you've done the smaller sale, then they'll do the bigger sale and the bigger sale. And in internet marketing, that's quite a lot of what the internet marketers do is they'll just go for the pound sale or the dollar sale. You know, they'll go for the book sale to, to and you pay the postage. Uh, and, you know, they might just be looking to get you to spend some money because if they went for their platinum retreat at $75,000 straight off an opt-in page, you know, you're never going to buy that. But they get the dollar, they get the rapport. And once you spend a dollar, you'll spend $10 and then $100 and then $1,000. And you'll go through what we call the funnel or the staircase, i.e. you'll go from the lower value products all the way up through to the higher ones and the highest and the higher, highest of all. So maybe you're selling the wrong products at the wrong part of the funnel or the staircase. Maybe you're going for too big a sale too early and you should be going for a smaller amount of sales to build the trust and the rapport. Because once someone's spent something once with you, it's so much easier and the risk is so diminished for them. And they'll just, it, 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 I don't even know what it could be, but it could be, they could be 500% or 5,000% more likely to buy off you again. So again, that's something you want to play with and test. Okay, so I hope you've enjoyed this has got to have to be part one. I've got, I'm looking at my notes here and wow, well, this might be a part two or part three. So sales makes the world go around part one. Now I'm really interested in your feedback, as you know. So if, if you've been listening to these podcasts and you haven't yet reviewed and you haven't yet shared and you haven't yet, me, yet given me your feedback, there's got to be a reason why. So if you, if you think it's because these podcasts are shit, well, A, why you're still listening, but B, tell me, I want to know. I, want, I read every review. And so do you like the part one, part two, part three, because this is the third one I've done now. If I was doing this as one podcast, it'd be two hours, something like that. That might not be too long. I mean, I listen to one podcast as two hours and I personally really love it. I mean, my team are always like, oh, it's got to be 30 minutes. It's been tested. Don't do them too long. But you know, I got, I got the world record for speaking. I didn't get the world record for listening. So I can go on. So tell me, let me know. Join the Disruptive Entrepreneur community. Post on Twitter. Post on my Facebook page and tell me, do you like the two or three parters or do you want it all in one go because I'm here to serve you and give you what's going to help you the most okay so I'm definitely going to do part two and maybe a part three of sales make the world go round really looking forward to that I'm going to give you books by Jeffrey Gittimer Robert Cialdini I'm going to give you a book called, uh, by Robin Lent another one by Dave Lacani another one by Tom Hopkins another one by Harry Beckwith another one by Sandler so I'm going to give you loads of great books which changed my life around selling and uh, that'll be worth the well the money or you don't even pay for these podcasts so thank you very much for tuning in if you don't risk anything you risk everything